pleasure to welcome our first guest to the program today, and we head to the University of Western Ontario, where we're joined on the line by the author of a piece called Cop Shows, Should They Be Cancelled or Rebooted? It's a pleasure to welcome Dr. Tiara Sukan to the program. Dr. Sukan is a professor at Western University who specializes in media studies. Dr. Sukan, Tiara, good morning. Good morning, Sterling. It's a pleasure to have you with us. I'm going right to the title of the article, Cop Shows. Should they be canceled or rebooted? What's wrong with them? Why do they need to be uh, either? What, what, what's, uh, what's the premise behind the question? The premise behind the question really comes out of the last year of protests, you know, the reinvigoration of protests against police brutality, that were really reignited by the death of George Floyd, but had been ongoing for many years before that, particularly in the U.S. And I think we've hit a point now where there's a public conversation around the role of police in our society. Sure. And this is not to say that police don't do important and difficult and often dangerous jobs. It's not to say that we should be eliminating police altogether, but that perhaps we need to look more systemically at what we actually want police to do and what we're asking them to do. And in order to have that conversation, we kind of need to rethink some of the representations we see of police in media because they kind of disproportionately show us police officers taking down bad guys. And a lot of police work does not actually involve that. Okay, so um, in the wake of a rethink of, uh, of, of our relationship with law enforcement, you're suggesting that television has a role to play. You're, you're a media studies specialist, Professor Sukan. So tell, tell us, talk to us a little bit about the influence, and it really is an exceptionally huge amount of influence, but talk to us about the, uh, the kind of influence television has, particularly as it relates to our perception of this particular issue, policing. Sure. Well, I mean, there's been a lot of research for decades about the influence of television. And, and generally, you know, researchers tend to come down on the side of TV is terrible. We should just turn it off and walk away. <laughs> and, and I can understand that perspective. But what I always tell my students is we can't afford to turn it off and walk away because it's still there. And as well, long as it's right. there, people are watching it. Yes. And if people are watching it, then it's influencing what they think and what they see. And it, it influences diffuse. You know, it's not immediate. It's not that you watch a television program and you suddenly have all these ideas and you go out and act on them. But right. in the case of police shows, it's because there are so many of them and because they've been on TV for so long. So it's the repetition of the same kinds of messages over and over again. I was thinking this week, you know, I could probably recite for you the First Amendment rights that a, a suspect gets read on an American police show, but I have no idea what we say in Canada, right? right so well, we have this kind of influence that, that impacts just what we think we know about the justice system even, and in a local sense, sense that's often quite inaccurate. Well, it's interesting because in our next hour, we're going to have another conversation with a with a, an academic in Montreal, Tiara, who is all about uh, Canadians tending to superimpose American history over top of ours because I guess ours isn't quite dramatic enough. And we do that as, as Canadians. We do that. We t we tend to project uh, that uh, that the experience of the next door neighbor uh, onto ourselves. Uh, and so, so Canadians and policing, our attitudes toward policing are different. 
different than the than the United States. I think that's a fair statement to make. But we do watch the same shows. So yes. as you talk about a continuing repetition of messaging, what's the messaging right now that's you that's so pervasive on cop shows, Tiara, that you find to be in need of perhaps some tweaking? Well, it's the messaging that the ends justify the means, ultimately. It's the messaging that, you know, because there isn't a question critically often of what the goal of policing as it's represented in these shows. Ultimately, it's always good. There's never any kind of gray area complexity about that. So if the bad guys are bad and the police officers are good, then whatever the police officers need to do to get the bad guys is okay. You know, whether that involves disproportionate amounts of force, whether that involves telling lies, whether that involves tricking people into confessing or coercing them or keeping them in interrogation for long periods of time without their rights. You know, and we understand that these are fictions and they're, you know, they're for our entertainment as much as Mm -hmm. anything else. But they do help us to become more comfortable, I suppose, with these stories when we hear them in the real world. So when we hear, for example, and we were hearing this for so many times, and I appreciate that these are American stories, but when we were hearing about the evidences of police brutality, people were being killed by the police, the discourse immediately goes to, well, what did they do to deserve that? You know, it's harder to have a larger question about, does anybody deserve that, you know? Um, And and so that becomes a little trickier. And in a Canadian situation, we don't have the same kinds of... we don't have the same kinds of conflicts, I suppose, between police officers and criminal perpetrators. What we tend to see more in Canada is sometimes where police are called out for mental health checks, where they're not best trained to be the people to intervene in those situations. And we've seen some quite tragic outcomes more locally as a result of that. Yeah. And then, of course, on the other side of the coin, and I'm just playing devil's advocate for a second sure. here, I'm looking at a headline in this morning's Huffington Post. Rash of mass shootings stirs U.S. fears heading into summer. Gun sales in the United States uh, this year are just off the charts. Already we're seeing, again, this is a release of the tension, the, the lockdown, all of, the, it, all of the, the, the stuff that's been going on. Uh, during this, people have quietly been stocking up on guns and ammunition and all that sort of thing. And the cops down in the States are really worried that the summer of 2021 is going to be absurdly violent. Now, uh, as they prepare themselves for what could be, uh, and, 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 you know, and at the same time as their nation is going through this rethink we just talked about, there, there's, there's, a, there's going to be an intersection there, Tiara. Yep. And I don't know, I don't know how it's going to look, but it, yep. it, there's a sort of a reality check that the cops bring to this conversation that the, the, is some who are doing the rethink, I don't think are even prepared to entertain. Sure. And, and in their case, they're in kind of survival mode. And, you know, I mean, the piece that I wrote is necessarily short. It has a word count and you can't talk about all the things. Right, right, but right. Personally, That's why what you're I would here feel this like, morning, you see. Exactly. And I so appreciate the opportunity. In the American context, I mean, we could argue that it's much, much harder because of guns just the whole issue of guns, because that's the larger question. There are many police jurisdictions. I lived in New Zealand for 10 years. There they have what they call an armed defender squad that they only pull out in really extreme cases. Your average Mm -hmm. police officer walking a beat does not carry a weapon. Right. Um, And and that's a very different kind of approach to police interaction then and to public feelings of safety around police officers. 
And even for myself, I mean, we didn't always have guns on police officers in Canada. So as I started to travel more, and particularly post 9-11, you know, when you would counter encounter law enforcement officers in airports and the guns mm-hmm, are right yeah. there, it's disconcerting. It takes a while to get used to just the appearance of that weapon. And so I think, again, when you have, when we're sending police officers into all of these different situations for which they're not always so well equipped to deal with the problem they're being asked to solve, bringing a gun to the party right away isn't always the best way to do it. And because of what we see on TV, we assume every interaction is going to involve an armed defender who wants to hurt people. And of course, we want police officers to keep us safe from that. Well, and you're quite right, because as you watch a cop show, it's always, no matter what, whether it's SWAT or whether it's uh, uh, one of these procedurals like law and order in which the legal uh, and uh, law enforcement uh, agencies interact to the successful conviction of bad guys and so on. But what what I'm driving at here is when you watch cop shows on TV, my gosh, is there ever a lot of artillery involved? Everybody's armed to the teeth and out comes the gun at every available opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that just kind of reinforces, I don't know, the inevitability of gun culture. It's very complicated, right? There are a lot of different interests that are involved in the production of these shows. And the gun problem is a whole other problem because I would say they go hand in hand. I don't know if we can really radically reimagine policing in the U.S. anyway, while there are still so many guns in society. And yet, of course, here in Canada, now as has been in the case in Toronto in the last couple of years, and you're much closer to Toronto than we are, but here in Vancouver yeah. this year, we're going through a real resurgence in gang activity. There are gang wars going on around Vancouver, Tiara. People are getting shot in the middle of parking lots and shopping malls in the middle of the day. Uh, it's getting a little out of control. We're speaking with Dr. Tiara Sukan from the University of Western Ontario. Let me just quote a piece from her article and we'll get back to it. There's a call for a radical reimagining of the function of the police. Writers and producers of cop shows have an opportunity to bring a dream of a more humane justice to our small screens. This could then help us to better imagine how to try transfer the role and structure of law enforcement agencies in the real world. This is a part of a piece called Cop Shows. Should they be canceled or rebooted? And Dr. Tiara Sukan joining us again from the University of Western Ontario, where she's an assistant professor in media studies. Uh, we, we were talking before the break, Tiara, about the impact of police shows. And I mentioned to you in an email I sent you the other day that I was a big fan of Dragnet. So I've, I've mm-hmm. obviously aged myself, but just the facts, mm-hmm. ma'am, Joe Friday and all of that stuff. Stuff. That, mm-hmm. that was that was pretty raw stuff. The other part about police shows, and they've been the same since the 1950s when television first started showing them, is everything gets wrapped up in less than 60 minutes. So mm-hmm. no matter how complex the, the issue or how violent the crime or how many people are involved, everybody gets wrapped up and tucked away in less than an hour. And and that and we all know everyone watching all of those police shows knows each and every time we watch one, that's not the way it happens. And yet we're mm-hmm. back for another episode next Wednesday night. Yeah. So let's talk yeah. about that. The impact of, of uh, the the enormous impact of TV and and how it uh, uh, affects our perception instead of what's really going on out there. 
Well, absolutely. I mean, I think that there are a lot of subtle and not so subtle implications of that kind of storytelling. And we're certainly seeing a shift to that. This is part of like television is very much in flux right now because we don't watch TV in real time so much anymore. You know, the Mm -hmm. number of people who have cut their cable cords and are watching via streaming services is also part of why time is kind of collapsed in on itself because you can watch through streaming services, you can watch Law and Order and you can watch episodes of television that are 20 or even 30 years old. You know, you can find old episodes of Dragnet. And for my students, they're encountering all this stuff at the same time as though it's new to them. So they often don't have a sense of context of when it was produced and the kind of social norms at the time, even the way in old episodes of Law and Order, the way that different populations are spoken about by the police has really shifted in in the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. But for sure, that kind of problem solution format of, um, you know, the 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 problem, the conflict is resolved within an hour in law and order. Sometimes they've even gone to court and they have an outcome within an hour. You know, in Canada, court cases can drag on for three or four years or longer. Um, It can take many months to process. Um, evidence that they use to convict criminals. So that sense of justice, I think we find that satisfying, and that's why we watch it. And it's partly because it's in such opposition to what goes on in the real world. But I think it also gives us a really kind of skewed perspective about what actually does happen in the real world. Because unless you research that stuff, you often don't know. You don't really have a sense of how long it takes for things to happen because of the... uh, If if I'm the producer of one of these television shows, my job is to deliver ratings to the network that has bought my show. So first and foremost, I need to cater to the tastes of of the most people who might watch my show. So that Mm -hmm. means I have to go after those mass appeal sentiments and issues that uh, that are going to grab uh, at least the attention of a large number of people to the point where they'll watch long enough to decide whether they want to watch the whole show or not and even that is a challenge so as as you suggest uh, in your article uh, writers and producers of, t- of cop shows on tv do have a certain measure of responsibility to the community beyond entertainment but their mm-hmm. primary role they will be the first to tell you is Mm -hmm. to entertain. So talk to us about the intersection of responsibility and entertainment. Absolutely. I mean, and this is a particularly North American thing, right? The American television industry has always been commercial. It's always been Mm -hmm. for ratings. It's always been funded by advertisers. If you go to the UK and the BBC, it's very different. Australia's got a different model. In Canada, we have a kind of hybrid. We have the CBC, but we're also dependent on commercial funding. Oh, and just to go back to your point about delivering to the masses, a CBC executive or CBS executive in the U.S. used to refer to that as the least objectionable programming. So that's what it is. That's their bottom line. We need to find something that is going to walk the line of appealing to people, not offending people, not offending our advertisers. And so that often means not delivering anything that's too intellectually or emotionally challenging. You know, we want people to feel entertained. We want to play it safe. We don't want to take risks. And that's why we see so much repetition. And it's also why we see seasons with 24 episodes. So it's not just the repetition of the same stories across different programs. It's, you know, and, and all of that, the kind of commercial imperative of broadcast television used to be to make its money through syndication. So if you had 100 Mm -hmm. episodes, then you could get a great syndication deal. And that's why so many of these cop shows have lasted for so long because they made enough episodes to be in syndication so we can continue to revisit them. 
So it's, it's right. a complex environment for sure. And it's difficult then to challenge people to say, well, sure, I'd like to tell different stories, but I can't tell them in this network. You know, so people will go to cable to try to do that. I mean, that's what they did with The Wire. Right. But The Wire is notably a very critically acclaimed show that just was not widely watched at the time. Um, and HBO has different imperatives because they charge a a subscription to, to viewers. So the viewership doesn't matter quite as much, but it still matters. You know, nobody wants to lose money making TV. Right. But our, you know, our movie guy, Rick Forchuk, is listening to us right now, and he's going to come on in a few minutes and talk about the latest streaming uh, movies, because in Canada, we still can't go to the theaters. But a lot okay. of what's going on is exactly what you're talking about, Tiara, and that's the fact that we're not relying upon those major networks with the, the show every Thursday night at 8.30 or whatever anymore. We have... Uh, just a limitless number of platforms upon which to consume or from which to consume media. And, and mm-hmm. so we can do it at our choice on our timeline in uh, whenever we feel like. So again, this offers, as you suggest, more opportunities for people who are, uh, who, who can do shows like the wire, which was notorious for its grit. This was, yeah. a, a, I think a, the, the, the one line that I remember hearing the most about the wire is it's not the, it's, it's certainly not a sexy show or flat or glossy it's actually really gritty and that's Mm -hmm. if anything it would suggest a measure of reality yeah and it was challenging to watch for that reason because you didn't have clear-cut good guys and bad guys Mm. you felt a lot of empathy for everybody you felt empathy for the police officers trying to do their jobs but you also felt empathy for these you know quote-unquote criminals many of whom are just caught up in a system of poverty and you know lack of opportunity and that show tried to show us the systemic intersection of you know lack of educational opportunities or lack of a parental structure and how you end up in a gang you know and and so and a lot of people died in that show because Mm -hmm. that's reality too and and so it's difficult to kind of like you watch it and it's really heavy and it's really powerful but it doesn't give you a solution Mm -hmm. And so that's less satisfying. You know, I think like the more choices we have to watch television now, I think for myself about why I spent so much time in the last year watching, coming back to these procedurals, because they're familiar and they're comforting in that sense. I watched Law & Order like in the 90s when it was first on. So there's something about just knowing what to expect and being able to go back and be with these characters that you're sort of familiar with. And even though something in the back of your mind is kind of going, "Mm, this doesn't quite sit right anymore you just turn that off, you know, because it still feels good to, to know what's coming. Um, and, and many of the newer shows, particularly the serialized ones that are telling the grittier, more complex stories, often they're not what we want to sit down and be entertained by their work to watch them, their work to take on board the messages that they have. And we just don't always want to do that work. So there's a whole bunch of things that have to happen here. It's one thing for, for these stories to be told and it's one thing for them to be put on our screens, but it's a whole other thing for us to come to the table and be the other side of that partnership to watch them. Absolutely. The article, friends, is at theconversation.com. I highly recommend you read Cop Shows, Should They Be Cancelled or Rebooted? by Dr. Tiara Sukan from University of Western Ontario. Tiara, thanks very much for this this morning. It's a real pleasure speaking with you. It's a great topic, and you're, ta- you're talking to a guy who's, who goes back to the 50s and dragnet. So, yeah, I like my cop shows, but they're really, really not very real at all, are they? No, they really aren't. It's been so great <laughs> to be able to talk to you today, today Sterling. Thanks, and uh, just a quick, just a quick, if I have a, a like 30 or 10 seconds sure. more, even, Go. I just found a quick fact 
that um, the dragnet thing, that whole just the facts, I was watching an episode of Pioneers of Television, which gives you a bit of background about it. And apparently Jack Webb, that was not his thing. Stan Freeberg, who was a dragnet, um, he, he made a dragnet parody record in the 50s oh. and it sold out. And he included it because Jack Webb had said it just once. And after that, Jack Webb said, Freeberg, you got me stuck. This is my catchphrase now. Uh, so that was, that was a little little tidbit. That's interesting. A nice little bit of TV cop show trivia to top it all Absolutely. off. <laughs> Thanks, Tiara. Great to have you on the show today. We'll talk again. Absolutely. Take care. There's Dr. Tiara Sukan at the University of Western Ontario. It's a pleasure to welcome our next guest to the program. She is the author of a piece that Andrew and I saw actually a couple of weeks ago. It's taken a couple of weeks to organize this person onto our program, and I expect it's going to be well worth the wait. The piece that we saw is entitled Racism and the Americanization of Canadian History, Why We Shouldn't Look at Ourselves Through a U.S. Lens provocative stuff. The author is Azra Rashid. She is uh, joining us from Montreal, where she is an instructor at uh, John Abbott College. Ms. Rashid is also a filmmaker and uh, and, and a, a member of the University of Sydney and a researcher there as well. Azra Rashid, thank you for joining us today. It's been a, it's, uh, been a, a challenge tracking you down. It's a pleasure to finally have you with us this morning. Thanks for having me. It's usually not that difficult to find me, but I think there's a lot of time difference, and uh, with the summer hours, it's a bit difficult. So, But I'm glad to be here today. Well, it's good to have you with us. And this is a very interesting and very timely piece that you wrote. Tell us why you wrote it in the first place. We'll dive into the, the, the nuts and bolts of what's in there, but why did you write it in the first place? I have been thinking about this for a while, um, ever since, the trial for Derek Chauvin was being broadcast live on YouTube and on many different news channels. I was glued to the TV. I was paying attention to what was happening in the U.S. And then around that same time, I was just thinking that there's so much happening in Canada and Quebec, and we don't see that kind of news coverage as a result of that. People are less aware of what is actually happening. And I see that uh, when I'm teaching College students are usually 18, 19 years old. I'm teaching them about racism. I'm teaching them about issues at home. And uh, they really don't have any idea of what is happening here. Um, And, of course, you are probably familiar with the the case of Joyce Echequan, which happened in Quebec in Juliet uh, just last year. Mm -hmm. Uh, The lack of media coverage, the lack of anger that I felt... um, that was very frustrating for me because I do feel that we need to be paying attention to what is happening right here at home and hold our politicians accountable for what's happening here. So that was basically the idea. That's where that piece started. I didn't mean for it to be a controversial piece. Mm. Um, It was basically just giving people a nudge that, hey, look, this is what's happening right here at home, and we should be talking about these things more. Well, and it's, it's an excellent point to make because, as you point, and it's a great example that you would use too, Azra, with the, the Derek Chauvin trial, because of course it received enormous coverage here in Canada, wall-to-wall coverage on many of the major television networks, and so it was almost impossible not to watch. And plus the fact that there there wasn't, I don't think, anyone in Canada who wasn't aware of the George Floyd story and this subsequent legal follow-up to it. So the interest in the story was absolutely. Mad- 
massive. But given the coverage provided to this by Canadian media, uh, I suppose you ask a perfectly legitimate question. If they're as as wall to wall on stories like this one about justice in the United States and, and racism and social tension in the United States, why aren't they as vigilant and diligent in providing an equal amount of coverage with respect to the same issues here in our own country? Precisely. I think we are so influenced by the U.S. media. Uh, we have CNN, we have access to all this news coming out of the U.S., to an extent where I feel that there's a level of laziness. I, I don't want to say that because I used to be a journalist a while ago. Yeah. Um, so I don't want to say that, but I do sense, uh, a, I find a sense of complacency, kind of laziness among the journalists that we're just getting all these news stories from the U.S. Why bother to dig into what is actually happening right here at home? And there's so much happening right here yeah. at home. I make reference to um, the law that was passed in Quebec, the secular law, Law 21, which was passed in Quebec. I just find it mind-blowing that Canadians are not paying attention to it, or at least not in the same way that they need to be paying attention to what is happening right here in Quebec and what are the consequences of something like that happening right here in Canada, like it or not, Quebec is still part of Canada. Sure, of course. Uh, So if we see something, because, you know, I I live in Quebec, so I am a bit more sensitive to to these debates happening around sovereignty of Quebec or uh, the special place that the Quebec culture needs to have in the Canadian society at large. So Mm. I am kind of mindful to those discussions, but still that's not to say that if something like this is happening right here in Quebec, it is not going to embolden similar kind of sentiments in other parts of Canada. And of course, uh, just a week ago, we saw the murder of the family in London, Ontario. Yes. All of these things are happening right here at home, and mm-hmm. we really do need to start paying attention to what's happening here. Yeah, I, I, as uh, with respect to the uh, coverage of the awful, tragic murder of those four family members in London. I think the media has done a decent job. Uh, yesterday, of course, was this uh, group funeral and, and so on. And, and there was there was blanket coverage provided and so on. But back to yeah. your previous example, could you take a moment, Azra, it's important. Could you take a moment and remind our Vancouver listeners of what you're talking about with the what you called the uh, the clerical the I'm sorry the the civil the civil bill in Quebec? This is the one regarding uh, religious symbols being worn by individuals in public, and it's forbidden if that individual is an employee of the government. Is that correct? Yes, that's the uh, it was Bill Twenty One, but now since it has been passed, it's the law, Law 21, still a lot of people still uh, refer to it as Bill 21. And yes. it basically says that if you are working in a position of authority, you cannot be uh, wearing any religious symbol. It could be a hijab that you're right. not allowed to wear, a kippah, a turban, or even a cross. It should not be visible. In the case of a cross, of course, it's very easy to hide under your shirt. Mm-hmm. Uh, but how do you hide a kippah? How do you yeah. hide a hijab or a turban? Um, what it does, of course, um, this has not been an easy thing for me to to talk about because I'm an atheist. But for me to 
come to this place where uh, I seem to be supporting the right of people to wear the hijab. That wasn't an easy journey for me. Uh, but I am there now because I do mm-hmm. see this. Because if a woman is wearing the hijab, she's an immigrant woman, and she has come to this country, she's wearing the hijab, now she won't be able to get a job in certain sectors, which means that she's going to struggle financially, which means that she's going to be further marginalized. She's going to struggle a lot to make ends meet, to buy food, to have shelter over her head. That is the main issue with this bill. And of course, we see that Quebec is a religious society. We celebrate Christmas. We celebrate Easter. All of these things, even if we want to call them cultural holidays, they have roots in religion. And I don't know to what extent we're able to separate religion and culture. And culture is not a static thing anyway. It's a dynamic thing. It's always in the process of changing. Uh, But when we impose such laws, we legitimize further marginalization of a group that's already been marginalized. And that is not going to be good for the Quebec society. It's not going to be good for Canada in general. Yeah, Azra, I need to take a break, but just before we yeah. do, did uh, what I found most disturbing about Bill 21, aside from the content of the bill and the restrictions and limitations it plays on the uh, uh, places on the freedoms of individuals to express themselves as they see fit, appropriately, of course, is the fact that when confronted by Bill 21, the Prime Minister of Canada, himself a Montreal MP, declined to uh, to, to to confront it. He, he declined to say this is wrong, this is a violation of people's charter rights, because in order to appease Quebec and get those incredibly important Quebec votes, Trudeau has just rolled over on this and also mm-hmm. on the other bill, the new one that's come up with respect to Quebec as a nation. Did that disappoint you to the extent that it disappointed me? Absolutely, absolutely. I... I find that there is a fair amount of criticism that we need to be offering to our prime minister because of the way he has handled certain situations. And recently, when this attack, when this murder happened in London, Ontario, some people started to make that connection between the law in Quebec and what happened in London, Ontario. Mm. And prime minister again repeated the same thing, same same point of view, that it's Quebec's own thing and people in Quebec should fight against it. He doesn't support it, but the people in Quebec, it's their responsibility to fight against it. But that's not really a solid response. It's neither here nor there. Right. He needs to take a better uh, better response on this. Agreed. You either, as the leader of, of, of this country, you either are for or against it. You can't be ambivalent about something that takes away yeah. people's rights. I'm Sterling Fox in conversation with filmmaker and educator Azra Rashid in uh, Montreal. Here's a quote from an article that she wrote recently. The same day a jury reached a verdict in the Derek Chauvin trial in the United States, a superior court in Quebec decided to uphold Bill 21. That's the law prohibiting public sector workers uh, from wearing religious symbols at work. While news outlets, uh, the story, however, was buried under the coverage of the Chauvin verdict, 
And while news outlets are flooded with stories on anti-black racism, many stemming from the other side of the border, there's still no uproar in Canada about legitimizing racism by targeting non-white communities, which our guest maintains is precisely what Bill 21 does as one example. In a piece that she wrote entitled Racism and the Americanization of Canadian History, Why We Shouldn't Look at Ourselves Through a U.S. Lens. Azra Rashid is joining us from Montreal. Azra, you were talking about one of the reasons that you, you identify Canadians' unwillingness to cover to the extent that we cover American events, you, you describe it as lazy. And I think there's a bit of that, but I also think it's kind of budget driven. Bear with me for a second. It costs a lot of money to cover stuff when you send out crews and teams. Now, what Canada has been, uh, what our news agencies have been going through for the last uh, 15, 18 months in Canada is coverage of the pandemic, which budget wise is really cheap. You have a camera fixed in. You have the provincial officers of health and health ministers. They sit down in front of the cameras. You have 10 of them every day. Each province takes a half an hour. There you go. Bingo. Six hours of live coverage. Dirt cheap. That's wonderful for Canadian media who tend to run on a much lower budget than American media. Would you take that into consideration when analyzing the differences in terms of coverage, Canadian versus American? Absolutely. I think there is a lack of funding. Uh, there is a lack of resources, lack of money, to put it simply, when it comes to journalism in Canada. And I do think, again, we need to hold our government responsible for it. Uh, we need to demand better journalism from major news organizations. Global is big out west. We have the CBC, we have CTV, we have a bunch of news organizations that are working here. We need to remind journalists the important role of journalism in maintaining a healthy democracy. Journalists play a crucial role in informing the public about what is happening here at home. They play a very, very important bridging role between the politicians and between the population at large sure. so that we understand what is actually happening. And the government needs to recognize that role of journalism and have better funding available so that quality journalism would start to emerge in Canada as well. Yes, I agree. At- and of course, we've taken the, the whole uh, electronic, uh, the media has taken a massive hit because in, in, in our country, as you well know, most of it is commercial. Most of it is driven by advertising dollars and the advertising dollars simply have not been there for newspapers, magazines, radio and television for almost two years. Uh, and as a result, we're sort of dealing with what we, we, we're getting by with what we can do uh, with the resources that are available to us. But you're right, uh, in, in, in the bigger picture, when in better times, uh, there's still a, a disproportionately low amount of, of budget, I think, in terms of, of news coverage. Uh, Azra, on, on the other side of the equation, you have Canadian organizations who insist on, uh, or not all of them, and certainly not all of their members, but you have colorful members of Canadian organizations, I'm thinking of Black Lives Matter and other such groups, who it, who seem to want very much to Americanize the drama of racism in Canada as if as if what exists isn't enough and and they embellish or am I misreading some of the over the top remarks as I see them I think that we do have a problem with racism against black people in Canada I don't think we can 
downplay that uh, that issue, that concern here at home. Uh, the Black Lives Matter movement is an important movement here as well. Uh, but I find that I'm not, <laughs> I don't really want to say this, but I feel that movements like Idle No More, they are so important. They originated, that movement originated right here at home in Canada yep. to talk about Indigenous problems, concerns that they have. Uh, and the way this movement was structured, it's remarkable. You have women who are in charge, uh, people who are quite knowledgeable about land rights, about what needs to happen in uh, various communities across Canada and how to support the Indigenous people better. So we have movements like that, but for some reason, not many people know about that movement. Mm-hmm. I was I was actually shocked when I was talking to a few of my friends. I'm like, you know, we need to have more discussions around Idle No More movement. We need to have some decent publicity for this movement so that people understand what is happening, not just in terms of problems facing the indigenous people, but also grassroots movements that are trying to counter that those issues, that, that are trying to b- bring light to those issues. But right. my friends didn't even know about Idle No More movement. And that Indeed. to me was shocking because they are quite educated people. They're quite uh, tuned in in terms of politics, uh, news here in Canada, but they had no idea about that movement. So I don't really want to say that the Black Lives Matter movement is irrelevant or uh, they have too much influence. What I am trying to say here is that we need to talk also about Idle No More movement. I think there's enough space in terms of media coverage, in terms of uh, political or public discourses taking place in Canada for us to have a conversation on more than one movement. Absolutely. Azra, I must leave it there. I, I'm, I'm fresh out of time, and I'm grateful mm-hmm. for yours on a Sunday morning, some provocative stuff, and I suspect that this conversation that you suggest we need to have is, in fact, well underway. Thanks for this. We'll talk again. Thank you so much for having me. There's Azra Rashid uh, joining us from Montreal, where she's an instructor at John Abbott College. The British Columbia government is launching a compulsory skilled trade certification system that it says will strengthen economic recovery by addressing labor shortages and supporting higher paying, more stable jobs. The premier uh, had a news conference on Friday to mention this. He says it recognizes uh, it'll be a big change for workers and employees. The transformation won't happen overnight. And you see, BC removed the requirement that tradespeople be certified back in 2003, making us the only jurisdiction in Canada without a system for compulsory credentials. One of the groups that has been lobbying most aggressively for this change of heart and policy is the Automotive Retailers Association of British Columbia. And it's a pleasure to welcome back the CEO and president of the Automotive Retailers Association, Adrian Scoble, joining us this morning. Adrian, uh, good morning. Good morning, Sterling. How are you? 
I'm very well, thanks. Are you doing a victory lap this weekend, Adrian? You've been on this file for a long time. You and I have had this conversation ongoing for at least a year and a half. The desperate need for uh, consumers, particularly in British Columbia, to have the confidence that when they take their car, as a good example, to, uh, to be repaired, the individual who's going to do the work is A, certified and competent, and B, uh, a member of, of, of a trade that is going to be fair with you, the consumer. This is something you've been lobbying Victoria with for a long time. Uh, so you're doing a victory lap this weekend, Adrian? It's a victory lap, and um, I would say it's more like a between you and I, a, a victory relay maybe, I, you know, passing the baton back and forth. You've been helping this and reporting it to the public. Um, it, it is certainly um, very good news for us, and it, it is not just us. There are 10 trades that uh, yes. government has identified. Um, so, I, yes, it's a, there's going to be a bit of a relay out there. I, I think the track's going to be a bit crowded with police people this week. Indeed. Now, let me just take a second. Just, just uh, the, the 10 trades are steam fitter, pipe fitter, refrigeration and air conditioning mechanic, sheet metal workers, power line technicians, industrial and construction electricians, automotive services where you come in, heavy-duty equipment, and auto body technicians. So the last three categories are very much in your sector. Uh, and they say all of this in the automotive sector will happen and be in completely in place by 2025. Uh, and again, the Premier said this can't happen overnight. It's a whole program that has to be reintroduced and uh, reintegrated into, into, the, into the sector. Nonetheless, it's starting, Adrian. Why, just, just out of curiosity, why did we dump this back in 2003 in the first place? Beats me. Um, there, there's, it, it, the, there's various different versions and stories of why, um, but uh, there's no, in my mind, logical reason why we would take something so important in our infrastructure and just say, no, we're not going to deal with it. And uh, it is allowed, to, you, you touched on, the, you know, it's going to take some time. It's allowed for the entire infrastructure to decay right from yeah. the high school level to the post-secondary education level um, to the certification pro process, et cetera. It's all decayed. So government now has to look at the entire thing um, and rebuild it. So it's going to take some time. And, I, and uh, they, they've certainly been very good involving industry so far, and they've already set up um, a number of processes. There's a, an online survey, by the way. I, I'm not sure if you've uh, seen that yet, but government has set up an online survey, um, and there'll be also a series of roundtables moving forward. Okay. So a lot, a lot to come. So now the, the round tables and the online survey, Adrian, this is now that they've made the decision that we're going to we're going to return to trade certification in the province of British Columbia. Now let's decide uh, combining consumers and industry stakeholders. Uh, let's sit down and figure out the best and quickest way to get this done efficiently. Is that what this next step is about? It is, Sterling. That's exactly what it is. And I would say it's very important for everybody. I mean, if you own a car or you work in the trades of, uh, or, 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 you know, you're dependent upon trades, I mean, everybody is. Um, so easiest way to find the survey, uh, again, is our website. We've talked about this one before, ara.bc.ca. Right. And there's an article there about skilled trades, and you'll see the links in there. The, the actual government link is a bit of a mouthful. Um, so easiest way to navigate would be to go through that way.
Okay, so the uh, the uh, automotive retailer's website again is ara.bc.ca, and the, you can link through to the. Uh, and if you're, for example, if you're listening to us now and you're an electrician, not in not in the automotive sector, but you can still go to that uh, website and you can link to that survey and participate because you're one of the ten designated first uh, trades that will be a part of this program, right? Yes, and and this is actually for the public as well, Sterling. So okay, um, you know it's for everybody um, it, it, to go in and express their thoughts and and where they see the advantages and disadvantages or the things that they think are going to be important. Well, Adrian, as uh, we've talked about in the past, and I think it bears bringing it up again, uh, th- this is really, the bottom line is really all about protection of the consumer. Because uh, if, if you're the, and again, as cars become more and more complicated, you can't do the points, plugs, and condenser thing anymore. <laughs> you have to have no. a computer terminal just to say hello to the car, let alone to, to figure out how to open the hood. I'm exaggerating, but not much. So again, this is this is an ongoing process. And, and, and for from a consumer point of view, uh, it really is important because these car repairs, Adrian, they just kept getting more and more expensive. The more computer toys you load into a car, the more expensive they become to fix and the more qualified individuals need to be to even go near your car. So all of this really is ultimately about us, isn't it? It is. It is really. It's about the consumer. It, it's about delivering a safe, quality product. But the other big part of this is simply respect for the trades. Mm-hmm. Um, that we, by allowing it to decay, we've taken the skilled out of skilled labor, and we need to put it back again. These are highly skilled, respected positions. And by putting it back in again, we can encourage students right from the high school level um, onward to join the trades. And right. I think by putting in, you know, when, the, when government looks at this entire process, the, we really need to encourage, um, you know, underrepresented groups, uh, w- women to join our industry, um, indigenous people to, to, to join our industry, et cetera, et cetera. And I think this entire process, in fact, I know this entire process is going to look at that aspect of it as well. Um, how do we train properly and encourage people to, to come into our industry? So I right. think it's going to add a level of professionalism as well as, as like you say, it, it's simply too important to our, our personal safety um, to just allow anybody to be able to, to participate in that industry. Well, and there's no kidding. And, and the degree of public respect that goes along with the, the accredited uh, professional uh, workers and tradespeople, uh, the, the public respect rises automatically with that. And, and I think that, uh, and I, a final question to you, because uh, again, doing a bit of a victory lap and who can blame you? Because this is the question, how long, and it, it has, certainly hasn't only been the automotive retailers. We get that because there are 10 trades involved. So there are, there's been lobbying efforts by various groups like the automotive retailers but for how long has this been going on adrian you've been at this and on this file for for years how many well it it was uh, the the process was dissolved in 2003 um and we've been on it ever since so we've never given up on it um and then the the work that has been done really once the uh the the current government engaged with industry it's been right. 18 months um, that we've been working um, quietly in the background with them and, and uh, in different groups. And our board chairman, Ron Tremblay, is the person who's been representing our industry. Um, 
giving a, a huge amount of time to that. So, and so have you. I mean, you, you and I have spoken about this a few times. Um, we've, we've been on all challenge trying to, uh, to get this move forward. So it certainly is, as you say, a real victory lap day. There's been hundreds of hours and lots of time spent um, trying to get to this point. Well, it's a, it's a congratulations you're hearing from me, my friend, this morning because of job well done, and clearly the job is far from over. And now it's it's everyone else's turn to step up and uh, let the government and those who are organizing skilled trade certification know what you think about it and your preferences. And just go to the uh, uh, automotive retailers website again. It's ARA dot bc dot ca and there's a link there to the survey the government uh, is currently uh, out uh, looking for your opinion and input on adrian scoville thanks for this this morning job well done sir but far from complete we'll talk again we will thank you for your time there's adrian scoville the president and ceo of the automotive retailers association of british columbia joined by troy clifford uh, mr clifford is the president of the Pam- paramedic ambulance uh, ambulance paramedics sorry troy of british columbia here to talk to us about the ambulance crisis in our province troy clifford good morning thanks for joining us good morning sterling thanks for having me on well, it's good to have you with us. Uh, we, you know, we see stories and hear stories on the news here on NW and elsewhere about uh, ambulances being called and people being required to wait and wait and wait and wait. And Troy, in in a big metropolitan area like ours, uh, it's it's scary. It really is scary. And we're looking at some of the stories behind the shortage, and we're seeing quotes quotes from you uh, and blaming the province for mismanagement. You say, and I'm looking at a quote here that's basically we have the buses and the money. What we don't have is the staff and it's not being handled well can you flesh that one out for us this morning troy please well certainly i can and you know and and so to keep it in context you know and when i say we have the you know the buses and uh, the cars we call them but the, you know that's the, the ambulance. Cars. okay a buses is american yeah, no, no, that's I, my fault that's on me troy no but that's a term we use and it's different uh, in different jurisdictions so sure. sometimes not everybody understands all those terms but uh, you know it's okay. one of those things we see all the time so as long as people relate to it right um but yeah you're right we do have the resources and that's where the gov- government's done a really good job of providing the funding and resources to the structure and the ambulance service and and some right. of the challenges we've seen is the management of it as i have quoted in the past and and that's where it's become really challenging and, and I guess frustrating, and we're seeing the impacts on on our patients and uh, and you know ultimately the paramedics wellness is is another big impact. So yes, those are the disturbing things, the delays, and and I can I, I can you know I can honestly say we've been uh, making some headway. We're we're on the top of some announcements for staffing, but our real biggest challenge is really getting paramedics into the profession, and right. we're seeing the worst of of. Uh, of the staffing challenges in the lower mainland, but it's definitely not lo- remote. It, we're seeing it in remote and rural as well, where our intake for uh, paramedics into the profession is. So it's been very challenging times for us, but then we're very concerned about the impacts on our patients because that's what we're all about. Sure. So, Troy, let's talk about that a little bit, because recruitment and and in one of the stories I I read about you recently about this situation by way of doing some homework for our conversation, you talk about recruitment issues and the fact that it's quite low. Uh, And I suppose if you combine that with the with the amount of of workload that the current group is carrying. So what can you talk to us a little bit about burnout among the existing staff? What we're dealing with, of course, a covid pandemic that 
that's a year and a half old, plus this incredible overdose crisis that has put an enormous strain on our healthcare system before COVID even came along. Talk to us about your people and burnout for a moment. So, 100%, you've just nailed it. I mean, five years plus of a old opiate crisis that, you know, sadly been lost a little bit of the significance and magnitude and the depths um, that we've been experiencing. You know, we've seen months of uh, last year was the worst year ever, and it's yeah. not getting better. And we need some, uh, we need to address that because that is impacting our wellness. Then you put COVID on it, which society is dealing with COVID, but paramedics and first responders have been, and our dispatchers are. So those things on top of the incredible call volumes that continue when we talk about call volumes, so we talk about our responses. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's like I've been calling it the triple threat, and it it really all is intertwined. But ultimately, what it's causing is significant mental health injuries to our paramedics and dispatchers that uh, is increasing incredibly. Those pressures, and and when you add, uh, you know, last week uh, the minister, I think, said we had our worst uh, or our busiest day ever or one of the top three busiest days. So you're going to see increased responses, workload with uh, additional pressures under COVID, the overdose crisis, and then Mm -hmm. somebody's picking up those extra calls that we're going to um, when we're we're short-staffed. So it's it's not a, it's not a, it's just, it's just, significantly impact and then when when crews arrive at calls and paramedics and dispatchers are unable to provide the care and the timely access to emergency care that is dear to their heart and the reason for their being that impacts your wellness when you have to explain to people that you're sorry because you're delayed or when you're trying to give them medical instructions that are medical dispatchers do and yet you know that uh your pressured resources that's that's incredible pressure on people that uh, is definitely affecting their well-being and, and mental health. Talk to us about recruitment, if you will, for a moment, Troy, please. What's the intake, the, the number of people joining the profession these days like now in 2021 versus, say, what it was like even five years ago? Yeah, well, I uh, fortunately have 33 years of experience in this profession as a paramedic in the front lines all over the province. And so I've seen lots of transitions over the years. And the last five years, we've really seen a change in the workforce and dynamics. So we we recruit paramedics uh, and dispatchers from, you know, a certain type of people who want to do this business. It's not for everybody. It's a profession True. that's drawn by people that are a certain type of helping, nurturing, caring type of people that, you know, some people say it's type A personalities. Uh, you do need to be a little bit assertive and those sort of things. But we're competing against other public safety disciplines, um, you know, Coast Guard, fire, police. Those are the kind of people that are drawn to the emergency services and public sure. safety, but also the healthcare discipline. So we're competing in nurses, physicians, uh, people that want to go into the health sciences disciplines and that. So all these type of people are, when they come out of school or when they're looking for career changes, we're trying to compete against them. And unfortunately, our model of recruitment into rural and retention, which is our intake area, is just outdated and not sustainable in the sense we pay a, a minimum uh, wage for uh, being on standby and you have to move to a rural and remote community or commute to them. So it's, uh, and, you know, and the other big commu- er, competition we're having is that industry is paying a lot of money for medics in the industry. Yes. What I mean, like pipelines and that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. So when you don't have the, uh, you're not able to compete um, with with those type of things there or, or offer a, a sustainable uh, wage and, and benefits 
um, then people choose other careers. That's just a yeah. supply and demand issue. And that's one thing that I can honestly say the government's been working with us the last couple months, uh, and I'm hopeful we're going to get some uh, traction in this area to address the intake of, uh, of getting people into this profession. Because it's amazing profession i love it sterling after 33 years i still love it and that's why i'm so passionate and people sometimes question my passion and that and it's just uh, you know i do it for my colleagues and our patients really well you know and you're a, you're an excellent spokesman too for for the profession troy it's a pleasure to have you on the program this morning to just articulate some of the issues that because all we know as consumers uh, in the marketplace is you know if if there's a concern about getting an ambulance to your place and your medical crisis in a timely fashion then that's something to be really worried about let's hope that some of those announcements that you are are indicating are forthcoming are the kind both you and we want to hear thanks for this this morning Thank you, Sterling. And that's really what uh, this is about. We want to make sure that we assure the public that we we are there for them because that's what it's all about. And thank you for Indeed. the opportunity this morning. A pleasure. There's Troy Clifford, the president of the Ambulance Paramedics of BC. As the world shifts to sustainable solutions to achieve net zero carbon emissions by 2050, the Canadian Hydrogen and Fuel Cell Association is here, and its aim is to advance the commercialization of hydrogen and fuel cell technologies, both here in Canada and overseas. And here to talk to us from the Canadian Hydro uh, Cell, uh, Canadian Hydrogen and Fuel Cell Association is Matthew Klippenstein, who is the branch manager for Hydrogen BC and the regional manager for Western Canada. Matthew, good morning and welcome back. It's been a while since you and I had a chance to talk. Good morning, Sterling. Yes, uh, thanks for having me. And um, that uh, that image of that uh, fast-running emu is uh, is going to give me nightmares, I'm sure. Oh no, Kitty! That's such a John is do- doing such a fine job on not not cracking up completely as he delivers the story. But really, the folks in Prince George having an awfully big giggle this morning. Can you imagine a two-meter tall bird you encounter while out walking the pooch on a Sunday morning? Yikes! Oh, that's right. <laughs> that would be like so, Matthew, a terrifying chicken of nightmares. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> no kidding, huh? Well, uh, I'm looking at a at a poll here that our uh, friend Mr. Mario Conseco has conducted recently, mm-hmm. and it mm-hmm. talks about uh, British Columbia drivers and electric cars. And you and I have had electric car conversations on the radio uh, a number of times over the years. And Mario is reporting a, a very small, a negligible increase in interest mm-hmm. in the proportion of BC drivers who say that their next vehicle will probably be an electric uh, or a hybrid. Uh, so the interest appears to be in this province, which has been at the tip of the spear in terms of electric cars. The interest appears to be waning somewhat, yeah, at least according to a very fresh new survey from research company. What would you uh, how could you explain that, Matthew? Sure. I guess uh, I just preface by saying that um, uh, even though I recently joined the Hydrogen Fuel Cell Association, I still uh, remain active in the electric vehicle community um, and um if listeners do have questions on uh, EV infrastructure and incentives, uh, my colleagues at Plug in BC uh, would be happy to help, or my former colleagues, uh, info at pluginbc.ca. Uh, okay. And with respect to um, uh, the, the research polling, I think in this one case, <clears throat> we might call a mulligan. I'm sure the polling is accurate. It's just that with everyone in lockdown for basically the better part of a year, actually more than True. a year, uh, I think that... Um, uh, deciding on their next vehicles or attempts to raise awareness of electric vehicles is uh, understandably didn't didn't rise as much as we might expect. 
Uh, however, with the uh, the introduction of the uh, F-150, F-150 Lightning, the uh, battery electric pickup truck from Ford, uh, I expect us to see a, a, a very large increase uh, the next time uh, this, uh, this research polling is done. Interesting stuff, because, of course, again, we were talking about President Biden a moment ago and uh, talking uh, actually in in, uh, in real terms about climate change and his country's uh, attitude towards it. He was also a happy uh, participant in a demonstration a few days ago with that new electric Ford F-150 truck. He liked the torque. He thought it was pretty quick. And you maintain that when all the dust settles and the electric vehicle thing really starts to happen, the parade will not be led by Tesla or some of the other foreign car makers, you maintain, Matthew, that is most likely, especially here in North America, to be headed by a company like Ford. Uh, yes, and um, so there's, there's a, it's a pretty mundane reason. Uh, Tesla is a, is a niche player. They, they appeal to, a, I don't know, like an, like an Apple kind of a consumer, a very particular uh, whereas Ford, uh, like as an example, the Ford F-150 has been the best-selling vehicle in Canada since, well, pretty much since before Don Cherry's been on the air. It's like 15, that's 15 right, plus yeah. years. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's been consecutive. Um, and uh, the, uh, the broad uh, number of people who you'll get, um, you know, contractor crews, people outside the cities, you know, basically your, your Tim Hortons type crowd as opposed to your Starbucks or fancy coffee type crowd. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a much broader base, and um, just with the, with the F one fifty, about one in fifteen personal vehicles, passenger vehicles sold in Canada, is an F series truck. Uh, right. And so, even if you peel off just a few percent of that, just suddenly you're talking about massive volumes. And uh, I expect uh, with the uh, with the Lightning that uh, it will be very appealing to many people. And uh, as such, um, I hope that we have a situation where Ford you know, underestimates demand because uh, that'd just be wonderful to have, um, you know, people across the political and geographic spectrum saying, hey, you know, these, uh, these electric vehicles really are great for me. Well, and uh, Matthew, a couple of things on that, because we've already seen General Motors, for example, in Ontario, uh, commit to billions to convert the Oshawa uh, assembly plant to an electric vehicle plant. So, again, these North American behemoths, these major car manufacturers, it seems likely that they'll end up being at the front of the parade simply because they have the production capacity to pump out more vehicles than any of their newer uh, in the marketplace competitors. So, Volume production alone uh, will assure that Ford's a prominent player, along with General Motors and Fiat Chrysler. Uh, I, but I guess I suppose what I'm 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 curious about is as as these companies roll over and they've made commitments now, we're not going to produce any more elect, uh, uh, gas-powered engines beyond year X. And you're starting right. to hear that from European makers and North American makers. What does that Ooh. say to you, Matthew? Well, that says that uh, the industry has shifted from a uh, a position of resistance, this is new, we're not sure if we can profit on it, will customers mm-hmm. want these, to a, a position of, uh, of, uh, of opportunity, I guess. It's like, well, we're going to try and be the first to uh, convert all the way to electric technology. We're confident that uh, we can convince the customer the benefits, that we, can, that we can make sure there's a whole solution for everyone. And so it's, uh, it's really one moving from a position of fear and skepticism, which you would have had five years ago maybe, to one of of uh, of opportunity it's like that what uh, you know crisis is the uh, is a matching of danger and opportunity some some saying about like chinese characters something like that and mm-hmm. so here we see the opportunities 
And uh, and yes, one of the things that is uh, is underestimated is that the like cars are probably the most globally competitive and most uh, sort of brutally Darwinian business in the in the entire industry in the entire world uh, because uh, like the best selling vehicle in the world has one percent market share. You know, if you think of cell phones and whatnot, there's no way that you know the best selling Apple smartphone has one percent overall market share. Well, that's true. And yeah. So, and so uh, what you have is uh, the ability to mass produce vehicles to make them super cheap well, compared to if they were if they if they were done in, in different manners. And so all those skills apply equally to electric vehicles as to combustion vehicles. The main groups that are going to be uh, disrupted, that are going to be affected, are the parts suppliers for right. those engine engine and uh, combustion drive trains versus electric drive trains. The uh, the automaker is going to be just fine. You know, I don't expect that uh, uh, electric vehicles are going to cause any automaker to go bankrupt um, because they have enough time to switch to form alliances. Uh, it's a little bit like um, you know how uh, I don't know, like uh, if, if your kids have hamsters or gerbils, you know they can have babies every year or every six months or something. Where mm. you know once you get up to the enormous creatures like whales and stuff, it's like well they kind of gestate for a year or two, and then they have to raise their kids for a year or two. Before right. they can have another baby. So it's so the automotive sector is like these big behemoth uh, creatures where everything sort of moves a bit more slowly. And it's different from the, what BlackBerry faced, where suddenly on a dime, everyone seemed to be like, oh, we're going to buy Apples and, uh, and Android phones. So um, I have great uh, confidence that the Canadian auto sector um, will be able to transition. And um, with all of our natural resources, you know, hopefully many of, uh, many of my, you know, my more right-wing friends and neighbors are going to see this as an opportunity to really drive up the uh, economic development, uh, uh, First Nations development as well, as we build up the supply of these new materials that we're going to need for these new vehicles. Well, that's, that's the other part of the equation, isn't it, Matthew? Because, you know, if we're, if we're going to discontinue a f- a gasoline-powered uh, engines, then we're going to replace them with, with, uh, with uh, electric vehicles or hydrogen fuel cell vehicles. But mm-hmm. the, the ingredients required to produce these vehicles to replace the combust the internal combustion engine lithium and various uh, copper and all the rest of it they and not only do, do we see an opportunity for it in terms of cleaning up the environment and purchasing these vehicles down the road somewhere there are also enormous investor opportunities right now for those in a position to do something to move their investment uh, focus a little bit to recognize that the demand for electric vehicles and the stuff that goes into making them is only going to continue to up 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 in the years ahead so if you're go if you're a commodities investor uh, this would be a good time to be reconsidering or reshuffling some of the ingredients in your portfolio because you're right the electric the electrification of the of the automotive industry represents enormous opportunities right across the board that's right. Well, I, I do want to emphasize that um, my, uh, you know, I don't give financial advice for very good reasons, if you've ever seen my portfolio. But um, <laughs> it's, uh, it, uh, uh, I do think um, it, now it's pulling hydrogen into the equation. So uh, in a similar way, um, so everyone knows that like digital film destroyed Kodak. But their arch rivals, Fuji, actually managed to pull through. Now, what they did is they had a series of layoffs to survive. And then they were like, well, where can we use our skills? And they went into pharmaceuticals because they had excellent lab uh, equipment, excellent knowledge of specialty chemicals. And they went into cosmetics, which are actually a higher margin business than photographic mm. film. And so one of the hopes that I have, 
one of the, the roles that I have here is to see what we can do in terms of um, Alberta's hydrocarbon fossil fuel resources. If, as, as long as the carbon dioxide stays in the ground, you know, this is marvelous stuff. We can produce carbon fiber uh, from the, uh, the bitumen resources, for example. Mm-hmm. And most of all, we can produce a low carbon hydrogen. And we can use that as a substitute for natural gas. You can use it for fueling. You can use it to make fertilizer and steel because uh, just as, as an input. And so, um, you know, there is definitely a shift, but there is a way for Canada to pivot our resource sector, our oil and gas sector, in a way that, you know, maybe it's not quite as big as it once was or we once hoped it would be, but it can still be very healthy and prop- profitable and prosperous within the new world. So hopefully I, uh, you know, I'll be able to put a little, you know, advance the ball a yard or two along that, uh, along that line. Talking electric vehicles with Matthew Klippenstein from the Canadian Hydrogen and Fuel Cell Association. Matthew, talk to us a little bit about fuel cells. Uh, it's, uh, you know, we're talking electric vehicles, we're talking batteries and, 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 and the technology, the alternative technology that's going to drive these vehicles. And then mm-hmm. we know about Ballard Power Systems. That's been a hydrogen fuel company that's been active in and around Metro Vancouver for decades. Uh, Ooh, where, sure. what, what's... What's uh, what's the story on uh, on uh, hydrogen these days? Where's it going? Sure. Okay. So as a bit of background, it's actually quite funny. So when you think about it, uh, batteries and uh, fuel cells are kind of cousin technologies. A uh, good way to uh, make an analogy might be I don't know, like a, not quite diesel versus gasoline, but but they are related technologies. Okay. And about forty years ago, uh, probably the first um, rechargeable lithium-ion battery company in the world started in in uh, in Vancouver. That's it was right. called Molly Energy. And um, what happened was uh, the technology they had was fantastic. It was world-leading. It was expensive at the time, but they had a bit of a setback. They had this uh, sort of had a little fire incident um, with one of their consumer products. And so a lot of the focus was like, well, we've got this expertise. What technologies can we pursue? And then a lot of that lithium-ion batteries expertise went into uh, fuel cells, went right. to Ballard. And so um, Ballard has, uh, has been around for, Ballard started with batteries, they shifted to fuel cells. They've been around for many, many years. Indeed. And uh, right now they have about... 3,500 buses and trucks that they power around the world, primarily in mm-hmm. China, but also in Europe, some buses in the United States. And uh, they're growing and um, not profitable yet, but that will come at some point. Uh, one joke that we, uh, that we like to say is that just as it takes about 30 to 40 years for a, uh, for a maple plant to become a big enough tree that you can pull off the maple syrup, that seems to be how long it's taking some of these fuel cell startups to, uh, to turn a profit themselves. Uh-huh. So, uh, <laughs> It's a, it's a bit of an investment, but eventually it's worthwhile. And, so what's the, uh, one, sorry, sorry Matthew, what's the, what's the main difference? So you said they're essentially like gas and diesel. They're essentially competing technologies. What's different in a hydrogen fuel cell powered vehicle than say sure. the other type of electric powered vehicle? Sure. Okay. So one of the, the one way you could think of a, of a fuel cell is that it's like a battery with an external fuel tank. A battery, like the AA battery you get for your little uh, little tools and whatnot, uh-huh. uh, those have all the all the reaction chemicals inside. A fuel cell does the same kind of reaction, but you store the fuel outside. And uh, for various reasons, uh, hydrogen is the fuel that's used for many fuel cells. Um, one way to think about the, the ways that batteries and fuel cells have different strengths is to think of like animals. 
if you think of all small animals you can think of, like insects, uh, maybe some crabs, uh, the smaller animals tend to be tend to have exoskeletons because if you're like a little fly or an insect, there's nothing that beats an exoskeleton for strength and being lightweight. But as you get bigger in the animal kingdom from like, I don't know, hamsters to cats to horses to whales, uh, everything has an internal skeleton, has an endoskeleton. And uh, in the same way, smaller vehicles, even passenger cars, tend to be uh, very well served by batteries. Uh, okay. The larger vehicles, in which case we're going at you know buses, trucks, buses, trains, right. uh, airplanes, boats, um, those tend to favor fuel cells. And you, you can kind of get some mixture in between those. Uh, you, you can get some uh, uh, hydrogen fuel cell vehicles or cars right now. Um, but that's kind of how it splits out. The, the universe splits between small creatures having these exoskeletons and large creatures having interior skeletons. And the expectation is that uh, batteries will dominate the smaller vehicle categories, and that fuel cells will be well represented in the bigger ones. Okay, fair enough. I appreciate I appreciate your taking the time. Uh, for a chemical engineer, this is a pretty boring question to have to answer, but it's critical that uh, because the difference, and more and more of us are just trying to become informed about this. Back to the survey that uh, Mario did over at Research Company, and I'm quoting mm-hmm. here, while only 22% of drivers who reside in the Fraser Valley say that a perceived lack of changing st- or charging stations would make them less likely to purchase an electric vehicle in the future, the proportion rises slightly in Metro Vancouver, over on the island, and, and uh, elsewhere in the province. The two complaints, as we've talked about before, the uh, the ability to uh, find a charging station being coming stranded and the simply the, the cost difference, which, as, as you predict, if Ford and General Motors continue to crank out EVs at the same rate they're doing uh, standard cars, those costs are going to come down uh, exponentially across the board. So the cost factor may be taken out, but Matthew, there's still that fear of being stranded with nowhere to charge the EV in the middle of nowhere. Right. And uh, I guess this is a good case where I can step outside, you know, my, you know, relatively well-to-do white male mentality and think that, you know, if I was driving a, a, a battery electric vehicle and I got stranded, uh, I wouldn't be so concerned because I generally drive in the city. And it's, you know, there's always a, I'm only a sure. phone call away from, from calling BCA or, or whoever. And, uh, you know, it might be a different experience if, uh, if I'm like, a, if, if I'm a, a woman or a person of color or something like that, especially if I'm in a rural area where maybe the cell phone reception isn't very good. And um, as another example, I've often charged our electric vehicle late at night at the local strip mall. And uh-huh. again, uh, if, if uh, I wasn't a well-to-do white male, if I was of a different demographic, I, I might be a bit more uncomfortable about doing that. And so... Um, in this case, um, I can imagine why there would be more of a fear of, of not being able to charge in Metro Vancouver and Victoria, because so much of our housing is in multi-unit buildings. Yeah. So we live in a condo ourselves, for example. Uh, in Metro Vancouver, 60% of households, 6-0, are in, uh, are in multi-unit buildings. And in these cases, you actually have to get permission from your strata to, uh, to, uh, to, to be able to put a charger in the garage. Uh, right. There is legislation which uh, which uh, has been uh, discussed, actually maybe even gone through by this point, saying okay. you have a right to charge, but then it's a lot more expensive to put a charger in a shared garage. Um, you, have to, you have to pull the cable maybe uh, 50 feet, maybe maybe further to get your parking space yeah. uh, than it is for someone who's you know, lucky enough to have a house with a detached garage. 
So Matthew, so, I'm almost out of I'm almost out of time oh, here, so and, and I, I do you know, no, it's okay because I, I was just curious that because the new end you're talking about legislation, which may correct some of these irregularities, and the new all the new buildings, of course, are being built to accommodate the oncoming reality of electric vehicles. That should be less of a problem. The newer the building you move into, the less likely you're going to have with charging realities. Matthew, I have to Absolutely. leave it there. Can you recommend a website to our listeners this morning to learn more about fuel cells and EVs. Sure. Well, I'll, I'll focus on the EVs for now, since that's the, the, the primary topic. Uh, and so, yes, if uh, visitors want to visit the www.pluginbc.ca, uh, that's the uh, the nonprofit group where I was uh, was working previously. That's uh, right. With, uh, with a wealth of information and assistance from people who aren't being paid to sell you cars. So it's very important to have a third party who's just giving you the information as opposed to having a financial incentive to steer you one way or the other. Excellent point. Matthew, uh, I'll leave it there. Uh, Pluginbc.ca. Again, friends, pluginbc.ca. It's a great website to learn about electric vehicles. Matthew Klippenstein, great to speak to you again, sir. We'll do this again. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Sterling. There's Matthew Klippenstein joining us today from the Canadian uh, Hydrogen and Fuel Cell Association. There are a lot of people in the hospitality and service industry around our province this weekend. Very, very much looking forward to hopefully the announcement tomorrow of the reopening of the province on Tuesday into phase two. BC's tourism minister is expressing confidence in our province's vaccination plan and what it could mean for American tourists returning. Melanie Marks says the decision concerning the borders is, of course, up to the feds and will be based on vaccinations. But that vaccination plan is further ahead than anticipated. Currently, 74.2% of adult British Columbians have received at least one dose and the uh, about 8% now are fully vaccinated. And of course, we all know British Columbia and specifically Metro Vancouver's tourism sector relies heavily on U.S. travelers. Here to talk about what we all hope is Phase two on Tuesday, and what that means to our tourism sector, is the CEO of the Tourism Industry Association of British Columbia. A pleasure to welcome Walt Judas back to our program. Walt, good morning. Thanks for joining us again. Good morning, Sterling. Nice to be with you. Well, it's a, it's a big weekend, uh, Walt. All the metrics, all those measurable metrics that determine whether or not we qualify to move to phase two are certainly in our favor. We've been watching caseloads go down, hospitalization, ICU cases go down, down, down. This is all, uh, we're heading in the right direction to the point where tomorrow, many of us are expecting the government to say, Tuesday phase two is a thumbs up green light. Are you expecting to hear that tomorrow? Well, we're <laughs> it's difficult to say because, of course, lots of the orders and travel restrictions have been extended, but you're absolutely right. Things have been trending in the right direction. There is great anticipation in our industry that uh, by Tuesday, the travel restrictions will be lifted, at least to allow BC residents to travel between regions. And yes, I think there's great anticipation that it's going to go forward uh, according to the stats and according to what we've heard, but there's always that variable, as you know. Walt, it, it, to take a look at a typical downtown Vancouver hotel this weekend. Not a lot of business going on. What is the capacity level of a big city hotel on a weekend like this while we're still in the major COVID phase versus what it could be as soon as next weekend? 
Well, typically at this time of the year, of course, you would see a combination of cruise passengers. You would see meetings and conventions in town. You would see a lot of people visiting for business purposes and or leisure travel. And hotels in the downtown core would normally be pretty full. They'd probably be anywhere between uh, 60 or 70 percent, somewhere in that range. And we're not yet at peak season, but it really depends on what's going on in town. But some mm-hmm. of those hotels still really aren't fully open. Some are uh, seeing in the low teens in terms of occupancy. And you really need about 50% to sustain a hotel. You need at least that in order to generate the kind of revenues that can pay the bills. So the hotels sure. in the major centers like Vancouver and Victoria have really, really taken a hit over the past 15, 16 months and continue to do so until we start seeing more restrictions lifted and, of course, the borders opening at some point. Right. Now, there's a lot of pressure coming from south of the border um, being directed specifically at Ottawa, where it ought to be directed, to get Canada more on side with the notion of two-way traffic returning between Canada and the United States. Uh, There still seems to be some resistance on the Canadian side, and yet there appears to be a a growing sense of optimism that it will be reopened. Uh, I mean, we've been talking Labor Day for months, and that's uh, unrealistic in terms of making a buck this summer. But uh, there, there appears to be more growing sentiment that the border will be opened before Labor Day, possibly. Uh, now, of course, June 21st is our next extension renewal. Walt, what do you see coming up uh, for June 22nd, for example? Hardly a full opening, but some consideration for fully vaccinated individuals? Well, really, that's what we're pushing for. There's a groundswell in Canada, too, not only from within the tourism sector, but Even politicians are suggesting, look, let's look at exactly what you just mentioned. If people are fully vaccinated, can we find the means to allow them into Canada without having to go through the usual COVID protocols? We've taken that step now federally with the federal government suggesting that Canadians returning home or Canadians that perhaps live in the States that come back to Canada don't have to go through a 14-day quarantine plan or spend three days in a hotel. So I see that as a very positive step. The Mm -hmm. next step then would be, why not open the borders on a gradual basis, perhaps to people from the U.S. that have been fully vaccinated, and then look at other countries where you have the same situation. Do it on a graduated basis. No sense in just opening the borders wide at this point. And obviously our industry, as as is concerned as anybody, about the health and safety of Canadians and residents. And we, we hold that first and foremost as a priority. But at the same time, we desperately need to see international travel again, or many businesses just won't survive. We can't rely solely on domestic. What I'm hearing is that the provinces and territories are meeting with the prime minister in the coming week to right. talk about the reopening. One of the problems is there are some provinces that say, yes, let's approach this and do it sooner than later. There are other provinces and territories that aren't quite there. And there's no sense in trying to implement a province-by-province plan. It really has to be pan-Canadian. And that's, I think, part of the difficulty. 
Yeah. Uh, Walt, final question to you, and we're grateful for your time on a Sunday morning. This is coming at you as a kind of a curveball, but you're the tourism guy. Suppose I'm a tourism employee. I'm a, I'm a, a tourism industry person. I've been in the, in the industry for a while. I haven't been working for almost a year and a half. Uh, my bosses are making noises about the, uh, the old getting the band back together and starting the biz back <laughs> up because it's time. And yet, I'm nervous. I don't know whether I want to go back uh, because I'm nervous about some new variant coming along and the whole shooting match getting shut down in six weeks again. And there we go all over again. There is hesitancy in the service sector, in the hospitality sector. What do you say to those people, uh, you the guy at the top, about hesitancy and about coming back and making the commitment to getting the band back together, if you will? It's a very fair question, and I think a lot of those uh, scenarios is what employers are facing. They're having a really difficult time throughout the industry getting people to consider coming back to work. In fact, the help wanted signs are all around the province in anticipation of the travel restrictions being lifted. And that's Mm -hmm. the next biggest problem for us, is trying to ensure that we have a workforce that, that is able to uh, step in and allow these businesses to ramp back up to capacity. What I would say to a potential employee is that, look, the health and safety measures that we as a business have put in place are very stringent. In fact, uh, we've complied with all of the WorkSafe BC orders and gone above and beyond the call to ensure that people are safe. The other thing that I would suggest, too, is that uh, many of those employees will have been vaccinated at least one dose. I would encourage them to get their second dose. And it will also be up to the individual employer to decide how they want to welcome guests. Will they be expecting people to have proof of vaccination? And there's no obligation to do that, and you can't force anybody to provide that information. But could there be a form of rapid testing that all employees take on a daily basis or Mm -hmm. potential guests coming in. So there are a lot of measures, I think, that employers are taking to ensure that their employees are protected. There isn't very much they can do about this notion of potentially shutting down in another four to six weeks. We can't control variants, can we? we? That's exactly it. So... Obviously, there are no guarantees, but also I think it's important to note that the province has put in place a sick pay uh, regime now so that employees who were perhaps fearful before about missing a day's pay or having to call in sick or having symptoms and, and being afraid not to go to work for fear of losing their job, all of that has been dealt with. And so, therefore, I think they can have some sense of security, too, that they aren't going to lose their jobs and they aren't going to be docked a whole lot of pay because that program is in place. So there's a number of things I think employers can do at this point, and hopefully we will find the right number of people to be back in our uh, workforce again and back in our sector to ensure that we can open in earnest in the coming days and weeks. No question about it. We're going to take a break here, and then we're going to zoom over to Victoria and check in with Ian McPhee over there at Prince of Wales Adventures. We're going to find out about how one BC employer is approaching the reopening. And Walt, let's just keep our fingers crossed, my friend, that tomorrow the government at least delivers an okie-dokie for Tuesday in Phase 2. Thanks for this this morning. Thank you, Sterling. 
There's Walt Judas, the CEO of the Tourism Industry Association of BC. Just looking at to what if we get the green light tomorrow for phase two on Tuesday, what this will loosen up. And for example, it will allow outdoor personal gatherings of up to 50 people, and that'll include birthday parties and backyard barbecues and the like. And on the travel side, provincial travel restrictions will be lifted. Recreational travel within BC will be allowed and BC Transit and BC Ferries will offer increased services as needed. And of course, it's the BC Ferries part on that that's important to us because as we turn our attention to reopening and businesses and the adjustments, the pivoting they're doing to get ready for Tuesday, if your business is on Vancouver Island, then BC Ferries matters a great deal. Ian McPhee is with us now. Mr. McPhee is Sales and Business Development Manager with Prince of Wales Adventures in Victoria. Ian, good morning. Thank you for joining us. Welcome, Sterling. Thank you for having me. Well, it's good to have you with us. We were talking with Walt Judas uh, from the Tourism Industry Association about the big reopen, and that's how the, sort of the macro picture province-wide. But let's zoom in on an individual highly tourist-dependent enterprise like Prince of Wales Adventures. Uh, how's it been, Ian, and what's it going to be like come Tuesday that's different? Well, I mean, it, the story's been told over and over again, Sterling. It's been it's been the toughest uh, 16 months of any business's existence if you're in tourism. There aren't any enough adjectives to describe the devastation that that we've gone through. We're, mm-hmm. you know, the first year was was bad, but then without anything in the you know any nuts in the tree from the first year, trying to go through a second year is just it's 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 incomparable. I I, I you know, and I don't want to dwell on that because that's what it's been. But let's sure. let's hope that what it will be will be, you know, positive and, and get get going. How about uh, how about the crew, the team that uh, so important, especially with an, an enterprise like a whaling adventure uh, operation that relies so much on experienced staff with all the safety protocols and experience? How about getting your team back together to be ready to go? Are they still around? Are they still available? And are they keen to go? Oh, our, our team are on fire and ready to go. We've uh, we've done all the drills. We've got everything going. We've kept our boats maintained. I mean, we've been operating all through, um, you know, with the exception of the November shutdown. Um, but it's just the capacity and the demand has been smaller. So not necessarily everybody's been out on as many trips as they'd like to be. But those sure. who are out are really enjoying it. And, um, you know, they're they're excited. The mental health of, of staff and people in this company and, and this this um, sector can't be overlooked. It's it's been a tough time. So, um, getting them out in the water, getting people, letting people, you know, see the whales, seeing their smiling faces, teaching them about stuff. It's just it's just been it's we're ready. We're, we can't wait to see more people. Uh, yeah, you couldn't be any more ready if you actually wrote a script about it, could you, Ian? So let's no, talk a little no, bit. We're ready. Let's talk a little bit about what can happen on Tuesday in terms of specifics uh, at the at Prince of Wales. Uh, for example, uh, you'll be able to receive uh, more passengers. I'm assuming per day, uh, more people per boat ride. Uh, specifically, how does it boil down on a on a on a daily basis? Well, so from our perspective, we haven't been subject to intense um, regulation limiting what we can do. Um, we have, as a company, taken the appropriate steps to minimize the number of people on boats, making sure we can do the right social distancing. So sure. um, not a lot will change with the order, um, but what will change will be the demand. And, you know, Victoria will now start to see people from Vancouver, um, right. those who are from Up Island, Nanaimo may come down to Victoria. People will start to move around. Um, we're fairly fortunate operating out of Victoria, Vancouver, and Telegraph Cove. 
you know, we are a local whale watching company for some pretty big sectors or pretty big sections of the province. So um, I think what we'll see is Victoria will pick up because a lot of Vancouverites are going to want to get out um, and we'll just see more traffic. We have some friends who uh, used to live in South Surrey who built uh, bought a new home over in Fanny Bay almost a year ago, and we have a standing invitation to go spend a weekend or a couple of days with them and enjoy their new home. They've got waterfront for crying out loud, Ian, mm. and we haven't we haven't been able to go. <laughs> it's it's a little annoying, especially because they have outstanding hospitality. But it's like that for a lot of people just itching to get back to the island for any number of reasons. And once we're there, well, then off we go for a whale ride, maybe. Well, I'd hope so. I think, and I think it's not just um, you know people who are able to come in more travel. There, the, there's going to be more things for them to do when they get here. You know, the, yeah. the hotels are obviously have space for people. Um, the restaurants will start to be able to, to serve more people. You're going to see less of the sort of the lineups and the challenges. Um, as long as people are behaving responsibly and respectfully and uh, continuing to get their jabs and, and helping us all move forward. How about jabs? Uh, for just a minute, and, and uh, Walt was was very quick to point out that there's no way an employer in British Columbia can coerce employees into doing anything, especially, and that includes vaccines. But just on a voluntary basis, how is how about vaccines for your people? Lots of people got jabs, Ian. Oh, I think I think ninety nine ninety nine point nine percent of our staff have got their first jabs, and I mean, I'm I'm in, for example, ready to get my second jab next week. So yeah. we're we're jabbed up. <laughs> jabbed up jacked up and ready to go well it's good to it. hear it's been a long dry spell and we we certainly wish you considerable success after after what you've been through thanks for this this morning ian we'll check in with you in a few weeks and see how how things have changed hopefully always very happy much to talk i'm always happy to, to share some good news i hope sterling thank you very much excellent thanks ian Take good care. Hopefully, with fingers crossed, get to phase two on Tuesday. That will allow a certain freeing up of restrictions across British Columbia. The next phase, hopefully on July 1st, is phase three. And the big difference there will be, first of all, we'll be allowed to do Canada-wide recreational travel. That's only a few weeks away. And the other biggie is increased capacity at both indoor and outdoor organized gatherings with a COVID uh, safety plan in place. Fairs and festivals can operate with a COVID safety plan in place. That's also part of phase three, which kicks in on July 1st. And there are an awful lot of organizations province-wide pretty excited about phase three, one of which are the fine folks at Gateway Theatre in Richmond. Barbara Tomasic is their director of artistic programs and is back with us this morning. Hi, Barb. Welcome back. Hi, how are you? Happy Sunday. I'm great, thank you. This is pretty darn exciting stuff. You and all those performers and all of those arts groups and theater companies all over British Columbia who have not had much of an opportunity to to show your stuff for a very, very long time. Uh, Pretty excited about Phase 3, and you've got something lined up for about a week after Phase 3 starts. It's the Songs of Summer. Tell us about it, please. Yeah, we're so excited. Um, So we've started this year a a new event for the summertime gateway doesn't normally do outdoor programming but we are doing a concert a month uh in our new td grove stage so it's uh, we have a park where the theater's in the park in mineroo park and so we've decided to expand beyond the walls of our theater and host a concert uh the first one's on july 10th with amanda sum and and then we have another one in august and another one in september and yeah, we've we've created a little outdoor space. It's socially distanced, and 
super safe. People can bring their chairs uh, and listen to an hour of music. It's so exciting for us. Okay. And crazily enough, we're already sold out. People are clearly. I, I'm not. Yeah. I'm not at all surprised to hear that. What will be the capacity per performance, Barbara? So we have to be right now with the current restrictions. We are at 50, including everybody. So that okay. has to include performers and staff. Um, but we're really hoping that as we move forward, if socially, if social distance restrictions uh, are increased outside, then we'll have a bit more capacity. So right now it's 50, fingers crossed, that as we move uh, through the summer into the different phases that it increases. So, and then we could possibly open up more tickets. But right now we're just operating within the rules and we're just so excited to have people come down to Gateway. So, okay, live performance, the first of which is coming up on July 10th. Barbara, how long has it been since there has been a live performance (laughs) at Gateway Theatre? That's a great question. Uh, I would say that our last performance live was, oh my goodness, uh, January 2019. Yikes. Yeah, we had to cancel two shows in 2019. What year is it? Sorry, that's where my head is at. So, no, sorry. It would have been 2000. It would have been 2020. 2020. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I so got you on that. I was able to follow that part. I've lost a year somewhere in there, as I think a lot of us have. So we're excited to actually see each other in person. We had a great experience when we were doing our sound check. We had people drifting in from the park to listen to the music. And there were a few people that were just so moved to be around live music. It was really special. Well, you know, it's it's interesting. We were out at uh, Ron McLean Park in Burnaby, uh, just walking through the park with the dog yesterday and just noticing yeah. how many people were out. It's just, I mean, A, the people in the park, uh, the fact that there were people, lots of them in Minaru Park is a wonderful thing. And the yeah. fact that they picked up on the sound check and the live music happening yeah. and drifted over just to just to see what was going on. Uh, I mean, it's it's just, it's all starting and it's just barely starting, but you can feel the excitement, can't you? Yeah, you can. And the hope, you know, that's what one woman said to me watching. She just said, oh, this fills me with so much hope. And I don't think there was a dry eye amongst any of us when when that started. It was it was pretty special. So, yeah. (laughs) So the arts community had a meeting a a week or two ago with the minister and Dr. Henry, uh, really trying very hard to impact or to talk to those two people about the impact of all of these rules and regulations on the industry and on performers and all the rest of it. Certainly a story that uh, both Dr. Henry uh, and, and the minister have heard from other sectors of the economy, but clearly they paid attention. They came armed with good answers Mm -hmm. and showed a remarkable degree of sympathy towards the arts community and performers so Mm -hmm. uh, you would think you would think that if there's any way to get those crowds beyond the the uh, current number of 50 and that includes performers and lighting and sound people too doesn't it so maybe on a a, a, now your first concert features a solo performer whom i'm sure will have a couple of backup players with her and then there'll be a small crew to, to to put on the show so maybe maybe 40 42 or 43 people for that show Mm -hmm. but maybe even between now and and uh the final show in early september those dynamics may change i think they probably will we're really hopeful and you know the people of bc and dr bonnie henry and and minister dix have been it's been really amazing to watch how things have changed and i think people have been really committed to 
you know, working together to make this happen. And so yeah. it's, it's, I, there is hope. And I think you're right. I think, you know, by September, the, there'll be potential for, for more, um, more people. And, you know, to be inside, like lots of theater companies, it's so exciting to see theater, other theater companies opening up their doors, planning to have shows on stage in September. And so right. that is, and we're planning for, for December at this point, which is ex- really exciting for us. So, yeah. And is there a possibility that if things loosen up, as we both hope they will, that you could <laughs> add more more performances between now and, and Labor Day? That's a great question. I know we're in talks about lots of ways to adapt, so that's definitely a possibility for Good. sure. Um, so we'll have to see, like, you know, we're kind of waiting till tomorrow to see. I know there's a new announcement sure. tomorrow. And then the next main one is July 1st. So that will sort right. of establish how we how we move forward. We also have to get our staff summer holidays <laughs> they've been working really hard this year so we have to make sure everybody's rested for the year to come because it's going to pick up quickly with everything well, else going to start happening here's hoping, here's hoping. i don't want to jinx that's it, right right yeah, uh, let me direct sure. let me direct my listeners to your website barbara it's gateway theater one word gatewaytheater.com and you can take a look at the songs of summer campaign or a program right. that they've got lined up and you can even buy tickets if there indeed there are any left barbara tomasic thank you for this good thank to you, talk Sterling. to you again and you take care now take care bye-bye Bye now. That is our program for this morning. I need to just take a very quick second here and uh, pay tribute and say thanks to my friend Andrew Ferreira, who has been producing this program for the last couple of years. Andrew is going back to school to Royal Roads University this fall and is going to take the summer off and, you know, catch up with life. It's been a weird year and a half. A, A marvelous guy and a great producer. My many thanks to Andrew Ferreira. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. (laughs) And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.